This is the City of Refuge, Thomaston, Georgia, Sunday morning podcast. The following is a live recorded sermon by Pastor Jeff Deal. We're finishing up the book of Nehemiah, so I'm going to read chapter 13 in a minute. That's the last chapter. If you've been paying attention... Uh, you'll know that actually chapter 11 should be the next chapter that we're on. But if you read chapters 11 and 12, it's mostly just long lists of names and what they all did. And um, there's some things we could point out there, but I think we're going to forego all that and trying to pronounce all those names. It's really not necessary to do that. The reality is is that the story of Nehemiah has been told. It's been told by Nehemiah himself. And then we've shared and discussed it in here. And it culminates in chapter 13 with Nehemiah really putting an exclamation point on the whole business and what happened, what has happened, what God has done for the people again. Unfortunately, Anytime you're reading about God's people in the scripture, you never find consistency that lasts very long. Uh, They'll do well for a while under good leadership. Now, that's a very important lesson that I I hope we've picked up through the whole book and that you pick up even more today is how important good leadership is and um, leadership that you can trust, leadership that you can depend on. Leadership that's not going to take you off in a bad direction. And um, I give thanks a whole lot in my own life for good leadership because I'd be totally clueless and lost without it. And, you know, last night went to Atlanta Motor Speedway with my brother and um, enjoyed for a little while another one of those cool City of Refuge perks that come along, and that is... You know, I don't care about racing, really. It's it's kind of cool. Um, but it gets a little boring just watching people ride around in circles, you know, even though they're going very fast. And sometimes they run into each other. That's the fun part, you know, when they run into each other and stuff bursts into flames and all. That's fun. But just re- watching them ride around in circles can get a little bit boring when they do that like 500 times. But... When you have the opportunity to go into the owner's suite and hang out, to to watch that through the window with the best view in the house and the best food you could find anywhere on the table over there and the great atmosphere, um, that makes it better. So those experiences are good and I'm thankful for them when they happen. But bigger than that is the issue of leadership. So. And, you know, we should recognize, first of all, and then give thanks for the fact that City of Refuge has tremendous leadership. And I'm not talking about me. I'm talking about, you know, my brother is our founder and CEO, and he is, he is one of the top-notch leaders in any arena, anywhere that you will ever encounter. And I'm not saying that because he's my brother or because I work for City of Refuge. You can talk to CEOs, presidents of corporations, chairmen of the biggest corporate boards of directors in America, government leaders. You can talk to any of those people who know know him and they will tell you the same thing. That this man is one of the finest leaders that they have ever met anywhere. And so built around that is a tremendous board of directors that is composed of very high-level, high-capacity, wide-bandwidth people in the business world, in the corporate world, in the legal world, and et cetera. And they are people who love God and who not only only are really good at what they do for work, but they also are very committed to the kingdom cause. So we're really, really blessed as an organization Uh, to have that kind of leadership. And, of course, the place that you can look 
to find out what good leadership and godly leadership is supposed to look like is to the Word of God, and you can find a lot of that there. And one of those people is Nehemiah. And his story is so relevant, so important still today because of that, because of his leadership, because of his unwavering commitment to listen to the voice of God and to respond in obedience to what God says. And that's what makes a good leader. That, that's what makes the best leaders. And then to not compromise, you know, which is huge. Um, because when you start compromising, what you do is you crack the door for things to come in and people to get involved who are going to uh, negatively impact who you are and what you're trying to do. When you compromise, you pollute the waters, right? And you still may have a good public persona and you still may do some good things, but it's not going to be maximum effectiveness. And there's a way greater potential for problems, uh, for negative publicity, for a lack of productivity when you compromise and you allow the wrong things to come in. And when you get into Nehemiah chapter 13, you see at the end of his tenure, at the end of his life, at the end of his uh, time being positioned as the leader of this movement, how he is more committed than ever before in his life to not compromising, right? And so, Let's look at the chapter and then we're going to go back and uh, review and learn a couple things from it. <clears throat> and on Father's Day, I challenge the men to write your own obituary. And the way you do that is not just to sit down with pen and paper, but it, it, it is written by the way you live. So actually, I don't have to challenge you to write your own obituary. You're actually writing your obituary every day. Um, by the way you live, by the way you make decisions, by the way you carry on relationships, by the way you spend money, by the way you love or don't love, by the way you give or don't give, by the way you forgive or don't forgive, you are writing your own obituary. Now the problem with obituaries these days is that a lot of them are just not accurate. Because when somebody dies, you don't want to disrespect the dead, so you have to make up good stuff. Or maybe it's not dishonest maybe it's just that they decide to leave the bad stuff out because you don't want to reflect negatively on the dead right and so there have been i've had calls in recent days to think about or say negative things about some people that have died but i'd rather just not do that you know just just rest in peace if you can um that's between you and god right <coughs> And let's not disrespect the dead, and let's not uh, play God by judging people's lives, right? So, you know, point out the good. I've been put in position many times. I've been called on to speak at a lot of funerals. Many times I've had to really dig to find the good so that we can talk about the good and then just kind of deliberately erase the bad because nobody wants you to get up at the final home going of their relative and talking about all the bad things they did and what a terrible person they were uh, usually sometimes they don't care right but i um just for kicks this morning decided to google obituaries and see what i could find i found two or three that i thought were a little bit humorous and one guy um uh, his wife wrote his obituary, and he said, she said in the obituary, this is true, believe it or not, this is not a ploy to avoid creditors or old girlfriends. And that was in the newspaper, <laughs> that she wanted people to know that her husband had not checked out just to avoid creditors and old girlfriends. And then um, one guy who was from a su suburb of Cleveland, Ohio, and had been a lifelong Cleveland Browns fan, his family and his obituary said, 
that his death was bad, but it was exacerbated by the hopeless condition of the Cleveland Browns. So, you know, you, um, you can put some humor in an obituary, but they may have been very serious because a lot of people have their lives tied up in sports teams and, and that's the emphasis when they leave here. <clears throat> and then um, one person, in, one guy in Virginia, uh, just before the presidential election in 2016, whoever wrote his obituary said, faced with the prospect of voting for either Hillary Clinton or Donald Trump, it was a lady, Mary Ann chose to pass into the eternal love of God. So she, she felt like death was better <laughs> than having to make that choice. So anyway, we are we're writing our obituaries. I think we should take that very seriously. And Nehemiah can help us a lot. So, says on that day, the book of Moses was read aloud in the hearing of the people. And there it was found written that no Ammonite or Moabite should ever be admitted into the assembly of God because they had not met the Israelites with food and water but had hired Balaam to call a curse down on them. Our God, however, turned the curse into a blessing. And when the people heard this, they excluded from Israel all who were of foreign descent. Before this, Eliashib the priest had been put in charge of the storerooms of the house of our God. He was closely associated with Tobiah, and he had provided him with a large room formerly used to store the grain offerings and the incense and temple articles, and also the tithes of grain, new wine and olive oil prescribed for the Levites, musicians and gatekeepers, as well as the contributions for the priests. But while all this was going on, I was not in Jerusalem, this Nehemiah talking, for in the 32nd year of Artaxerxes, king of Babylon, I had returned to the king Sometime later, I asked his permission and came back to Jerusalem. And here I learned about the evil thing Elishab had done in providing Tobiah a room in the courts of the house of God. I was greatly displeased and threw all Tobiah's household goods out of the room. I gave orders to purify the rooms and then I put back into them the equipment of the house of God with the grain offerings and the incense also, I also learned that portions assigned to the Levites had not been given to them and that all the Levites and musicians responsible for the service had gone back to their own fields. So I rebuked the officials and asked them, why is the house of God neglected? Then I called them together and stationed them at their posts. All Judah brought the tithes of grain, new wine, and olive oil into the storerooms. I put Shelemiah the priest, Zadok the scribe, and a Levite named Padiah in charge of the storerooms and made Han Hanan, son of Zakur, the son of Mataniah, their assistant because they were considered trustworthy. There you go. They were made responsible for distributing the supplies to their fellow Levites. And remember me for this, my God, and do not blot out what I have so faithfully done for the house of my God and its services. Let's pause right there real quick and talk about what we can learn from that first section that finishes up. I actually divide this chapter into three sections. The first section ending with verse 14 where he says, Remember me for this, my God, and do not blot out what I have so faithfully done for the house of my God and its services. So I think the first thing and all of this relates to leadership, and he places people in important positions of leadership here because Nehemiah has gone away for a period of time, and like I said, it usually takes no time at all for God's people to go back into patterns of disobedience and rebellion when good leadership is either absent or they're not paying attention, right? So you remember when Moses went to the mountain and is actually having one of the most incredible encounters with God ever recorded in history. And when he gets back down from the mountain, what's going on? 
He's only been absent for a little while, a very short time. And he's doing important God work, and he's still the leader of the people. But just in his absence for a very short time, the people turn to disobedience and rebellion and idol worship and paying attention to other gods from other places and ignoring the words of the one true God. And all of a sudden, the nation is upside down again, is fighting against its own progress again. So it's about leadership, but it's also about stewardship. And stewardship starts with leadership, but stewardship then runs downhill. Okay? So what does that mean? It means that stewardship is the responsibility of the leader or the leadership team, but beyond that, stewardship is also the responsibility of everybody else. So listen, you're not off the hook. You're not off the hook when it comes to stewardship. What does day-to-day -day stewardship looks like, look like? Well, I mean, do you really want to know? <clears throat> You've been in the bathrooms here, right? You've seen in the kitchen, right? Maybe you haven't paid attention to it. Little signs on the wall that talk about how Excellence means cleanliness. Passion and excellence equate to when anybody in the house who's part of the family sees that a paper towel missed the trash can, that they have an obligation to bend over, pick up the paper towel, and put it in the trash can. That when someone sees a trash can that is overflowing and smelly, that they shouldn't be sitting around waiting for somebody else, paid staff or whoever, that they think is responsible for that. And yes, we do have people who are given responsibility, but sometimes that person may be gone on vacation. That person may have been overloaded that week. That person may have been distracted. Okay, or just forgot. Or, in some cases, that person may have been sorry for a few days. So what do we do? We call them out on being sorry, absolutely. But then what else do we do? Do we just let the trash run over in the floor? No, we take the trash to the dumpster. We put the trash in the dumpster. We put a new trash bag in the trash can and put it back where it goes, right? That's good stewardship, which goes across the board. When it comes to the works of service with kids and in the community and on the property, right? We are all responsible to be good stewards of what God has blessed us with. Last week I mentioned how incredibly grateful I am and how it still blows my mind that we have been blessed with the properties and the facilities that we have, right? And, and again, this week I was talking with people about it. We had the development team, 10 people from City of Refuge, come down to Sunny D Farm. And we did a tour with them. We, we fed them lunch and we shared our plans and our projects and the things that are going on over there. And when I was telling them about the acquisition of the property and, and went back to the acquisition of this property, because this is as important as that. It's all important. I just have to pause. And I paused when I was talking to them. I paused because I have to gather myself a little bit. It blows my mind and I, sometimes I get emotional. My voice gets a little bit, you know, it quavers a little bit because it just, it, I'm blown away that we have been blessed the way we have. I have friends in ministry that, you know, they're doing good works and they're blessing their communities, but man, they're working out of some pretty pitiful, you know, places and they haven't been blessed the way we have. And I'm not, listen, listen I'm not trying to say we're more special than anybody. I, I'll say it again. I don't understand it because I believe there are guys I know who are friends of mine who are co-laborers in the kingdom who are more godly than I am, frankly. So I don't understand it, but I know it's what's happened 
And I have to respect that, and I have to appreciate that, and so do you. And we have to be really, really high-level stewards over that. Right? So, last Monday, you know, it was blazing hot for a few days there in a row, and we just got the whole team over here to get outside and to take, get on these weeds and to get on these hedges and to get on blowing the property and getting everything cut and trimmed, pick up sticks, you know, because I don't want us to let things go to where they're ugly and out of order and then have to work our tails off to get it back. I want to get it at a real high level and then maintain it because I want every time people drive down the road for them to look and say, wow, that place is really well kept. Are y'all okay? I mean, does that sound like something you'd like to? Is that, do you line up with that? Uh, we, we all have a responsibility for stewardship. And in this first section, Nehemiah mentions a few things that are involved in stewardship. And one is the blessing of God's people. And when he gets back from his trip to Babylon, what immediately strikes him is that the people of God in the house of God who are part of the family of God have not been taken care of like they should have been while he was gone. You know, the folks who were left in charge of stuff have not done it at the level that Nehemiah has outlined for them or expects from them. And they have not been great stewards over it. And listen, when... The folks out there are not good stewards, then they reflect on their leader even if he is a good steward, right? Because it's always going to land in the lap of the leader or the leaders, whatever happens. You know, there are people who have to resign their positions and they never really did anything wrong. But the responsibility for it comes back to them because they're the leader, right? or they're the owner, or they're the boss, they're the manager. And blessing God's people, we can never get away from that. It has to be right up at the top of our priority list, is that we minister to people in need. We bless people who are struggling. We take care of the weak and the vulnerable. That's why we run a kids program. That's why we're involved in anti-trafficking. That's why we're involved in housing and wraparound services and programs for previously homeless women and kids and now men. That's why we're serving veterans. That's why we're serving people returning to society from incarceration. Is because we are called to, we have a responsibility to serve people, especially people who are struggling. That's why we write checks to help people who are struggling to pay bills sometimes. When the money's there, we do that. We respond to that because that's our responsibility and it's a matter of stewardship. Secondly, when it comes to stewardship, listen, this is, I've said it before, I'm going to keep saying it, and I don't want you to take it the wrong way, and I'm going to clarify because I make some pretty ridiculous and bold comments sometimes. It's about keeping the wrong folks out. All right, so now here and there I say stuff like, you know, if you're serious, the, the, some of the chairs are going to be empty because people don't want serious. I believe that, but I don't want it to sound like that I'm about driving people away because I know the responses to that are going to be, well, you want people to come in so they can hear the truth and potentially they'll be drawn to the truth and their lives will be transformed. They'll know God. Yeah, I agree with that. I'm all about people coming. But let me tell you what I'm not about. I'm not about people coming in here sitting around for years and doing nothing. Okay? I'm not about people coming in here sitting around for years and giving nothing. I'm not about people coming in here and being around and hanging out and benefiting from what we do, but never working, never picking up that trash, never taking it to the dumpster, never sweeping the floor, never bringing in something when we have a food event. They're going to eat it, but they're not going to bring it. I'm not about that. If Look, I'd stand up to tell you this one. If I was okay with that, I would be a terrible steward. If I was okay with that, I would be a bad leader. 
because I would be letting you get away with what you shouldn't be getting away with. Right? Bunch of parents in the room. How many of you think it's okay to let your kid just get away with bad behavior? You've told them over and over and over, clean that room up. They just don't clean the room up. So what you do, you get frustrated. You go in there and clean the room up. You know what you call that? You call that bad parenting. You call that irresponsibility. You call that bad leadership and bad stewardship. And you call that teaching and training them to do the same thing. I'll sit back down. Keeping the wrong folks out is about not letting people just come hang out forever because they benefit from it and they never want to give, they never want to do, they never want to serve, they never want to bless anybody. They just want to be a sponge. Growing up in a pastor's home, working in churches in my life, couldn't tell you the number of times I've, had, I've known of people coming in and saying, hey, yeah, we're going we're to be leaving. We're going to another church. Y'all ever know anybody do that? And you ask them why, and they say, well, because I'm just not getting fed. I, I'll be frank with you. There's nothing makes me want to jump up and just slap somebody across the face as hard as I can as that right there. I'm not getting fed. Well, you know what? You feel empty. You need to be fed. And the reality is you're sitting around here waiting on somebody to feed you. When it, you, If you get up off your sorry behind and get busy doing something, you know what would happen? All of a sudden you would start to feel really full. Because that's how you get full. You don't get full coming in here sitting on a chair listening to me once a week. All that's supposed to do is to complement what you're already doing out there. Right? You get full when you dig into God's Word and you respond in obedience and you love and you give and you serve and you do. That's how you get full. Keeping the wrong folks out means that. And keeping the wrong folks out means keeping people who bring a negativity and who, who are cynical, who are naysayers, who want to cause problems. You know, Tracy talked to me this past week about a church that goes in this big circle of church problems. <laughs> and the next one has risen up now. And it's just like, whoever the people are that insist on stirring that pot all the time, if I was a leader of that house, I'd show them a door and I'd show it to them real fast. Because it cannot be about numbers and it cannot be about tithe payers. It has to be about purity and our motivations. It has to be about genuineness. It has to be about great stewardship. It has to be about great leadership. It has to be about great service. I was listening to an interview this week with Elon Musk. Y'all know who he is? He's the Tesla guy. And the interview happened right after the Tesla annual meeting. And the, the interviewer asked Musk, he said, um, you know, a lot of people have problem with your tweets because they tend to maybe support some conspiracy theories and maybe tend to lean one side or the other politically and all that. And that could damage your business and that can turn some people off and that can send some partners away and whatever. How do you respond to that? And he sat there for maybe 15 seconds silent. I knew he was measuring his response. And then he said, well, you know, I'm reminded of a scene from The Princess Bride, which I've never seen, but he said it's a great movie. And evidently there's someone in the movie whose father has been killed and he is, he is uh, addressing that and he says, I don't care. He says, you can offer me power, you can offer me money, 
and I just don't care. And so the interview asked Musk said, so are you saying that you don't care if you lose business, you don't care if partners are turned off, you don't care if negativity comes to your company? And he sat there another few seconds quiet, and then he said, I'm going to say what I want to say, and I just don't care. If it costs me money, I don't care. And I loved it. I love that attitude. And you might say, well, Musk has got so much money that he can lose a whole bunch of it. It's not going to matter. But the principle is still the same, right? When we get caught up on making our important life decisions based on whether or not somebody's not going to like us or whether or not it's going to cost us a few dollars rather than basing them on morality and ethics and what we believe in and our faith and our stewardship, we're going to be in trouble if we go that other direction. And then the third thing he says is that proper care of the leaders has not been happening. Proper care of the leaders. So he has Levites in place. He has people who are running the ministries in the temple, people who are in charge, the various aspects of leadership in his absence. And they've been pushed out. And you've got this guy who's come in and invited one of his buddy, buddies who's been a mouthpiece against Nehemiah's leadership and against the cause of rebuilding the walls and the gates. And he's cleaned out a room for him in the temple and let him move in in Nehemiah's absence. And when Nehemiah gets back, he says, oh, no, no, no. No, we're not going to push out the servants of God in favor of this guy just because he's got a name and a reputation and some influence among people. No. He's been working against us. I don't care who he's kin to. As a matter of fact, who he was kin to was a problem. Right? He, he was connected with the foreigners who were enemies of the people of Judah. And then he finishes up in verse 14, he says this three times in this chapter at the end of each section. He says, Remember me for this, my God, and do not blot out what I have so faithfully done for the house of my God and its services. What is Nehemiah doing? He's saying, man, I'm, I'm bent on writing the right kind of obituary right here. I'm going to write the right kind of obituary. And the right kind of obituary is the kind that God would put his stamp of approval on. If, if God attends your funeral, I hope he does by his spirit, I hope he doesn't have somewhere else to go that day because your deal is just not that important. If God is sitting in your funeral, do you want him to be okay with the thoughts that are going around in the room and with the obituary and the eulogy that has been written. That's what Nehemiah is saying. Remember me, God. Remember me. Remember that I was faithful. Remember I tended to your house and your people. Remember that all the services that we were required to oversee and manage and get involved in were done at a really high level with passion and excellence and dignity and integrity. Next section. In those days I saw people in Judah treading wine presses <clears throat> on the Sabbath and bringing in grain and loading it on donkeys together with wine, grapes, figs, and all other kinds of loads. And they were bringing all this into Jerusalem on the Sabbath. Therefore I warned them against selling food on that day. And people from Tyre who lived in Jerusalem were bringing in fish and all kinds of merchandise and selling them in Jerusalem on the Sabbath to the people of Judah. I rebuked the nobles of Judah and said to them, what is this wicked thing you are doing, desecrating the Sabbath day? Didn't your ancestors 
do the same thing so that our God brought all this calamity on us and on this city. Now you are stirring up with more wrath. You are stirring up more wrath against Israel by desecrating the Sabbath. When evening shadows fell on the gates of Jerusalem before the Sabbath, I ordered the doors to be shut and not open until the Sabbath was over. I stationed some of my own men at the gates so that no load could be brought in on the Sabbath day. Once or twice, the merchants and sellers of all kinds of goods spent the night outside Jerusalem. But I warned them and said, why do you spend the night by the wall? If you do this again, I will arrest you. From that time on, they no longer came on the Sabbath. Then I commanded the Levites to purify themselves and, do, and go and guard the gates in order to keep the Sabbath day holy. Remember me for this also, my God, and show mercy to me according to your great love. The house of God. Number one, we got to keep the worship real and pure. I'll say this and just pass right over it. All over the place right now, a picture of what Nehemiah just described is going on in churches in America, where it is a place of business. It's an attraction. It's a place of revenue. It's a place of entertainment. It's a place of buying and selling. I think that we probably should take seriously the issue of turning the house of God into a marketplace, into a place of vending, buying and selling. It is dangerous ground. And you've already thought about it before I even bring up the most prominent example that we can point to, and that is when Jesus walks into the house of worship and sees this very thing going on. Yeah, still going on a thousand years later in Jerusalem in the same city when the Son of God is walking the earth as was happening back in the days of Nehemiah. Still the same pattern. Still the same foolishness. Still the same inattention to the purity of worship that God commands. <clears throat> and Nehemiah calls him into question just like Jesus did. And says, no, this is not what the house of God is for. We have to keep the worship pure. It has to be about a focus on Him. It has to be about sacrificing ourselves in order to honor the One who created us and gave us an opportunity to live in His presence. The second thing he points out here is that there can be no compromise. And I mentioned that early on. Look, it can't be both. It has to be either or. Either we're going to maintain and operate a house of pure worship, of pure service. Worship and service are really the same thing. Or it's going to be something secular. It's going to be something of the world. Remember last week when I talked about being of something. What are you of? You're either of the kingdom or you're of the world. The house of God has to be either or. It can't be both. It can't be the kingdom with a little bit of the world mixed in. Can't be the house of God, but we're going to compromise and bring a little bit of this in because a little bit of this will probably draw more people. A little bit of this will probably make everybody feel better. It's compromise. We have to keep it pure and we have to refuse compromise. And thirdly, we have to place great value on God's ways. That's how we know. There's always the question of, well, how do we know and how do we get there? It's good to know we're supposed to be there, but how do we know how to get there? Well, it's simple. Really so simple that we pay attention to God's words and God's ways and we simply think and do the way He thinks and does and responds and does, <laughs> does, responds, and then... We begin to do that ourselves, right? We pay attention to His words and ways, and we make that a lifestyle. 
That's being of the kingdom. Keep it pure. No compromise. Place great value on his ways. And what does he say in verse 22? Remember me for this also, my God, and show mercy to me according to your great love. Section three. <clears throat> Moreover, in those days I saw men of Judah who had married women from Ashdod, Ammon, and Moab. Half of their children spoke the language of Ashdod or the language of one of the other peoples and did not know how to speak the language of Judah. Oh, we could spend a whole lot of time there. We could spend a whole lot of time talking about people who wear the badge of faith in God and in Jesus Christ, but they speak in some kind of language that is foreign to the kingdom, right? It's a language that sounds a whole lot like some language from the world. It just doesn't sound like a God language. Nehemiah says, I rebuked them and called curses down on them. I love this next sentence. I beat some of the men and pulled out their hair. So y'all know what's coming. Now I have no idea how I'm going to handle people like Anton, Sherwin, Dean's got a few sprigs up there we can still grab, Stephen. I, <laughs> I, I beat them and pulled their hair out. Now that's hilarious, right? This guy's frustrated. He's frustrated. He's like, how do you knuckleheads end up back here? After all we've been through, these are not new arrivals. These are not greenhorns. These are people who were there when Nehemiah showed up from Babylon the first time and said, we're going to rebuild these walls. We're going to rehang these gates. We're going to refortify and rebeautify this city. We're going to rebuild our culture. We're going to live in security and productivity. We're going to enjoy our families and we're going to grow crops and we're going to maintain our businesses and we're going to have a good life. And many of them were like, huh? Hold on. We're under the control of a foreign government and everything's in ruins and we got no money and all the good people have been taken captive and all that's left here is a ragtag bunch of nobodies that doesn't know how to do anything. But that's exactly how God works. And what they saw in, what, 54 days? They saw the reality of what he said was going to happen. They were there. They participated. They witnessed. Huge miracle. And he goes away to Babylon to fulfill his duties there. The king gives him permission to come back. He comes back. And now he's witnessing these same people living in rebellion, doing their own thing, marrying foreign women, getting all sorts of religion mixed up in their faith in the one true God. And he's like, man. He just starts calling down curses and runs around smacking people and pulling their hair out. I just love it. You know, Bruce sometimes says, if God would just kill one of us, everybody else would get up and start doing the right thing. And I just bust one of us in the head with lightning one day in the middle of a worship service. Uh, right, right at the point when the leader is saying something that we need to really, that, that we're not doing at the level we should and we should be, and just bam, knock somebody out on the floor, and then everybody else would get it right. Right? Well, he's not doing that. So maybe I'll just start running around, start slapping people, pulling hair. But I don't have to do that here because you guys are awesome. I'm not fuzzing at you. I'm telling you so that we make sure that we maintain our approach, that we maintain our level of stewardship, and so that we can give it away. Because I don't expect you to just exercise this stuff when you're here in this room or when we're gathered for whatever. I expect you to take it out of here. 
Utilize it in your life out there. Teach it to your children like Deuteronomy says, when you're going down the road, when you're working in the field, when you're sitting at the table. We ought to be instilling these things in our children so that it's what they understand and what they live in. I made them take an oath in God's name and said, you are not to give your daughters in marriage to their sons, nor are you to take their daughters in marriage for your sons as for yourself or for yourselves. Was it not because of marriages like these that Solomon, king of Israel, sinned? Among the many nations, there was no king like him. He was loved by his God, and God made him king over all of Israel, but even he was led into sin by foreign women. Must we hear now that you too are, are doing all this terrible wickedness and are being unfaithful to our God by marrying foreign women? One of the sons of Joida, son of Elijah, the high priest, was son-in-law to Sanballat the Horonite, and I drove him away from me. Remember them, my God, because they defiled the priestly office and the covenant of the priesthood and of the Levites. So you notice there that in the middle of Nehemiah imploring God to remember him for the good he's doing and for his godly leadership, he's also asking God to remember them for what they're doing, but in a whole different way. <clears throat> So I purified the priests and the Levites of everything foreign and assigned them duties each to his own task. I also made provision for contributions of wood at designated times and for the first fruit, fruits. And the last verse, remember me with favor, my God, writing his own obituary. And all Nehemiah does in those last few verses is goes back and reestablishes what he did before. You remember it? How he set all this stuff up the right way before he left. How he put the Levites in place. He gave them their assignments. He shared with them the roles, responsibilities, expectations. And he told them, I'm going to hold you accountable. And when he went away, they turned into jellyfish and allowed these bullies to push them off center. The Levites have actually now moved out, for the most part, of the temple. They moved out. They've given their spaces away to the knuckleheads. They've allowed Tobiah, Sanballat, all these guys, we heard their names before, right? What were they doing? They were making trouble. They were running interference. They were threatening. They were scheming to try to bring all this down. And now the Levites, who've been left in charge, allow themselves just to be bullied out of the way. And that's what Nehemiah finds, finds when he comes back. So now, it's disgraceful because he has to spend his time and energy again doing the same thing all over. And there's nothing more frustrating to leadership than to have to keep doing the same stuff all over. Who, whoever, who's ever watched the Andy Griffith Show? One of the best lines ever is from Ernest T. Bass when he says, I don't chew my cabbage twice and you ain't heard the last from Ernest T. Bass. How many my kids would tell you the number of times I have said to them, I don't like to chew my cabbage twice is countless because it frustrates me to have to keep saying the same thing over and over. And it frustrates me to have to keep going back and doing the same work over and over. Okay? Tracy loves her little pigs who are not little anymore. They're about that big. And they tear stuff up. And I'm telling you, I've had to repent so many times. Miss Deborah, I'm sorry, I've backslidden over and over over those pigs. And then had to repent and come back because I'll do work and they tear it up and I have to go do it again. And Jonathan warned me, but I'm hard headed and easily pushed around by the bullies in my life and end up with these pigs. Any of y'all get frustrated with having to chew your cabbage twice? <laughs> That's what he's talking about. But he digs in. There are a lot of good leaders, a lot of good pastors that have given up. It's called burnout. They gave up, got frustrated, they went on to do something else. Why? 
because they had to keep chewing on that same cabbage and people just don't change. First time you go on vacation, you come back and you feel like you're starting over, right? So, like I said, get us to a high level. We work hard and then we maintain. We continue that commitment. We continue that stewardship. We continue all the things that we've been challenged to do by God through His words and His ways by His Spirit. And then we ask Him to remember us with favor. And He will. He'll help write our obituary and He'll be pleased with it when it's all said and done. So I hope you've learned something over the past few months from the book of Nehemiah. And we'll go back and revisit some... some um, lessons that we've learned there from time to time. But these stories relate to us right now. They're relevant right now with what's going on in our world. And we have to stay committed to who we are and what we're doing. Let the distractions bother somebody else. Let the bullies get tired of us instead of us getting tired with them and letting them do what they want. They get tired with us and go somewhere else because we're so dug in committed that God's going to be at the center. We're going to be at the perimeter. We're always going to be looking for what he's doing, and we're going to respond with a yes and an amen to whatever that is. Amen. Father, thank you for your words today. Thank you for the book of Nehemiah, for the person of Nehemiah, for the lessons that we've learned there, and I pray that those lessons would be ingrained in us, that they would help us and strengthen us and teach us ongoing. And that your Holy Spirit would bring to our remembrance just what we need to know from it right at the right time. I pray over your people blessings of peace and power, provision and protection. That you would guide us and shine your light on our pathways so that we'll know exactly what to do, where to go, and that our days would be productive. And we pray that you would bless our giving of time, talent, and treasure. And we love you and honor you, and it's in your name we pray. Amen. <laughs>